This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals. The information presented is for general educational purposes only and should not be used as professional medical advice or for the diagnosis or treatment of medical conditions. The views and opinions expressed do not represent the views and opinions of our employer or any affiliated institution. Expressed opinions are based on scientific facts under certain conditions and subject to certain assumptions and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to the diagnosis or treatment of medical conditions or in any legal proceeding. Full terms and conditions can be found at portablebeads.com. And now onto the episode. Welcome to Portable Peds, the Pediatric Board Review Podcast. Thanks for tuning in this week. I'm Elizabeth, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sam. Hi, guys. Tonight, we're going to continue with our theme of the month, infectious disease, specifically CNS infections, and today's topic will be about torch infections. So let's go ahead and jump right in. So our case for this week is a two-week-old neonate who presents to the outpatient office for a weight check after recently moving from out of state. No newborn records have been sent from the previous hospital, and the mother is unsure of her prenatal testing. She does state that the delivery was uneventful. She is concerned because of a rash that has developed over the past day, and she has noticed that he seems smaller compared to his older brother when he was the same age. On exam, you note a murmur, a petechial rash over his entire body, and his weight is below the first percentile. What is the most likely cause of this infant's symptoms? A. Congenital parvovirus B19 B. Congenital cytomegalovirus C. Congenital rubella D. Congenital syphilis or E. Congenital toxoplasmosis Take some time to think about it, and then we'll be back with the answer. So Sam, what is the most likely cause of this infant's symptoms? So the correct answer is actually C. Congenital rubella. The most common congenital infections include toxoplasmosis, syphilis, rubella, cytomegalovirus, and parvovirus B19. We'll need to dive into the specifics of each to parcel out the subtleties between each to make the appropriate clinical diagnosis, given that they all lead to overlapping features of IUGR, or intrauterine growth restriction, or postnatally known as SGA, or small for gestational age, and multisystem organ involvement. So answer choice A was parvovirus B19. This is not the right answer due to the clinical presentation. The typical presentation of parvovirus B19 in the neonatal period is extremely severe with isolated pleural and pericardial effusions, fetal hydrops, and a high risk of fetal death. The greatest risk of mortality is present if transmission occurs in the first half of pregnancy, with the overall risk being between 2 to 6%. The diagnosis is made with a positive serum IgM specific for parvovirus indicating that the infection occurred two to four months prior. Being a virally mediated disease process, the treatment is limited to supportive care. What about answer choice B, Sam? Yeah, so answer choice B is in regards to cytomegalovirus, or commonly known as CMV, and the presentation in this patient is not consistent with this. The vast majority of infants with congenital CMV are asymptomatic at birth, but if symptoms are present, they'll most likely include IUGR and then SGA, jaundice, hepatosplenomegaly, microcephaly, thrombocytopenia, intracranial calcifications, and hearing loss. So many things. The easiest way to remember congenital CMV is with the four C's of CMV. The first is chorioretinitis. 
The next three are actually all together in central cerebral calcifications, being that they're periventricular, and the last is the potential for sensory neural hearing loss. These babies can also have thrombocytopenia with subsequent petechiae and purpura, making that classic blueberry muffin rash, but they typically will not have cardiac involvement and will not then have an audible heart murmur, which is the distinguishing feature here. The diagnosis is made by CMV-specific PCR, which actually can be run on urine, stool, saliva, CSF, or blood, and IgM can be tested within three weeks of birth. The treatment is with gancyclovir or valgancyclovir. And answer choice C, the correct answer. Do you want to dive more into that one? Sure. So here in answer choice C, we're going to learn about congenital rubella. These infants present with IUGR, followed by SGA, cataracts, cardiac anomalies, deafness, and the classic blueberry muffin rash, which sure sounds like our patient. If suspecting this diagnosis, it is important to obtain an IgM level, which will be positive between 0 to 3 months of age. Early eye exam and echocardiogram is important for initial diagnosis and to continue to closely monitor and intervene in these patients if necessary. Patent ductus arteriosus and pulmonary valve stenosis are the most common cardiac anomalies associated with congenital rubella. White matter anomalies and periventricular calcifications are often present, as are calcifications in the basal ganglia. Given that this is a virally mediated process, the treatment remains largely supportive and is it incredibly important to vaccinate mom. It is important to note that the risk of congenital infection and defects resulting from such is highest during the first 12 weeks of gestation and decreases thereafter. Defects are rare after infection in the 20th week of gestation. This presents a substantial problem due to the fact that a significant portion of mothers may present for prenatal care after this time period. In a similar fashion to CMV, these infants need to be followed well into childhood due to the high rate of hearing dysfunction associated with congenital infection. Now, what about answer choice D, Sam? Yeah, so the last two answer choices are obviously incorrect, but I think they're worthwhile to walk through. The presentation of this patient is not consistent with congenital syphilis, which is an answer choice D. If you remember back to step two, first aid had the best, or the worst, pictures of this unfortunate condition, which to note, congenital syphilis is actually back on the rise. Congenital syphilis is likely to present with more mucocutaneous lesions, hepatosplenomegaly, snuffles, lymphadenopathy, osteochondritis, hemolytic anemia, or even thrombocytopenia. So if you're someone who frequently forgets to put on their gloves, let this serve as a reminder. The skin and all secretions are highly, highly contagious, so be sure to put those gloves on. If the mother has had adequate prenatal care, this is something that's routinely tested for, but depending on the timing of testing and when she would contract the illness, it does have potentially missed. Of note, if maternal serology is positive, the infant should be screened with a VDRL test or, more commonly, an RPR test or confirmed with fluorescent treponemal antibody absorption test, or you might commonly see this ordered as an FTA-ABS. Or you can also use a microhemagglutination assay for treponema pallidum antibodies or commonly ordered as an MHATP test. If the infant is positive on confirmatory testing, treatment should be initiated right away with penicillin G. And that leaves us with our last answer choice, answer choice E, which is incorrect. But Liz, do you want to walk us through why it's incorrect? Sure. So let's learn a little bit more about congenital toxoplasmosis, which was answer choice E. This did not fit our picture based on the clinical history and physical exam that was provided. The vast majority of infants affected by congenital toxoplasmosis are asymptomatic at birth. If there are symptoms present, they typically include a maculopapular rash, as opposed to the purpuritic one seen in congenital rubella. They will also have generalized lymphadenopathy, hepatosplenomegaly, 
jaundice, pneumonitis, petechiae, and thrombocytopenia. Similar to other congenital infections, microcephaly, chorioretinitis, seizures, and hearing loss are also common manifestations of congenital toxoplasmosis. It is even more common for this disease process to not rear its ugly head until later in life. At that point, it may present with seizures, developmental delay, learning disabilities, and cognitive deficits. It is important to note that when toxoplasmosis occurs early in pregnancy, there is a lower chance of fetal infection, but when infection does occur, the consequences are more severe. The opposite then holds true. If the infection occurs later in pregnancy, there is a greater chance of infection, but the sequelae are less severe. Diagnosis is made by the presence of IgM or IgA immediately or by IgG if testing is done after one year of age. Treatment is with pyrimethamine, sulfdiazine, and folonic acid for at least one year. Well, there we go, Sam. I think we made it through all those answer choices. That was a lot. Those torch infections are so interesting to walk through, um, but so much overlap. So I think it's really great that we walk through each of those. So thanks for listening to another episode of our podcast. We'd like to give a huge thank you to Scott Holmes, who created our intro and outro music, Hot Shot. We'd also love to hear from you. So send us an email. We want to hear your topic suggestions, things you like or don't like about the podcast, or just to say hello. Otherwise, we'll see you guys on social media, and we'll be back next week with another CNS infection case. See you next week. Happy studying. Bye, guys. Bye.